All right, so um, I'm here with JF Martell from the Weird Studies podcast, and um, I'm excited to talk to you. If you just want to, I guess, introduce yourself a little and say what you do and sure everything. Um, yeah, well, I'm I'm JF Martell. I co-host Weird Studies with Phil Ford, um, and we've been doing this podcast for like almost five years now. Uh, I'm also a writer. Um, I wrote a book called Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, and I'm writing a couple more books right now that will be out eventually. Um, and I do a little bit of teaching, and uh, I'm by training, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, did that for a long time, and I still, I guess, nominally remain a filmmaker, although I'm trying to focus on other things right now. But yeah, so that's that's what I do. That's a lot, that's a lot of Some stuff. Some people say I'm a philosopher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I love yeah. your podcast. Um, I don't know if I've seen your films. What films have you done? You know anything? Oh I know of or... no, I I was doing mostly like documentary TV, um, so okay. TV shows for Canadian TV. Oh, okay. um, so probably I mean no. there was one show that went to PBS. It was called Skindigenous. I worked on the first season of that, and that's the one that's gotten the most play uh, internationally uh, of the things I've worked on. But oh. um. And I've done some short films, but I've pulled those out of circulation just because I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, but uh, yeah. So, so it was more of yeah, it was a job. Um, although of course I, I passionately love cinema and and um, am very much interested in the art of filmmaking. Um, yeah. My, I think my first, my kind of drive in life is is philosophy and. The sort of things I'm doing now, yeah. That's cool. So you mm -hmm. probably where your interests lie most. Is it mostly in the Weird Studies podcast, or is it in you know, the books you're writing? Or yeah. what are you writing, by the way? Um, or I'm writing you... a. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll I'll give you the the short <laughs> version. Um, Sometimes you I'm gotta keep a... those things in the cooker. So I'm like, yeah, if you yeah. don't want to share, I totally get it. Oh, it's too late for that for the for the one <laughs> okay. book, anyways, because I. I taught a course um, for near learning last spring called groundwork for a philosophy of magic, which is the title of my book that I'm writing. Nice. And so that's, that's, it's a book of philosophy, a book of metaphysics and aesthetics. It's kind of a, kind of a sequel to reclaiming art, I guess, but it's going to be much, I think much bigger as a book. Um, and so I'm working on that. Uh, I'm also working on a book that I'm co-writing with Phil Ford. So that okay. would be like weird studies of the book. Uh, nice. That's for Strange Attractive Press in the UK. And I'm also writing, uh, I'm working with uh, another writer whom you may have heard of named uh, Peter Biebergall. And he and I have been working on uh, books for um, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. So I'm doing some of that too. Because I'm a big, uh, big tabletop gamer. Nice. Have been. Yeah. That's fun. So a bunch of different things. Yeah. So how did you... I don't know if I've heard this before. I know some of your background that I heard on another interview with you. Um, yeah. But how did you how did you meet Phil? Because you said right before oh, we yeah. started the recording, you you said that uh, he lives in Indiana. You're in Canada, so. Yeah, but he is Canadian. Oh, okay. um, he was he was born and raised in Sudbury, which is about five hours from Ottawa, but up north in the okay. northern part of the province. So. He was born up there, but I, I didn't know him, obviously. Um, I, I met him in 2015, right after my book came out, uh, Reclaiming Art. 
we um a friend of his was tweeting about the book or he and this yeah we're somebody they were talking about the book and i kind of i got tagged so i got into the conversation at that point it was it was kind of magical just to see people talking about something yeah. written um and uh and we connected and then we did an event in ottawa together like he came up because he's canadian he was visiting family around here so we did an, uh, a kind of book launch event at a place called octopus books in ottawa where i live and uh we had this wonderful conversation and uh after that one evening um we started to write emails to each other um so we started corresponding about all these philosophical ideas all these things we touched on uh, art and and the weird was obviously a big a big uh subject for us and um and after a couple of years of these of of this correspondence in which we were writing each other emails that were like literally like like several thousands of words to an email it was they were like essays uh we we played with the idea of writing a book together um we talked about doing th different things but phil was really into podcasts i wasn't i didn't really know much about podcasts back then and he had the idea of doing a podcast and he got the domain name like weirdstudies.com and we did some research about different platforms, and we we just started recording episodes. And I think we'd recorded like probably close to a dozen, yeah, probably between eight and a dozen episodes before we launched it. So we uh, the first one we recorded several times because uh, we couldn't get our format right. At first, we had all these ideas about structure, and we'll have like segments and that that didn't last long <laughs> that that idea um and eventually we kind of we were happy with the first one and then we we but we canned it and then we recorded a whole bunch more and then we we launched it in 2018 i think it was late january or february mm -hmm. 2018 okay and uh and that's how it started that's how we met that's how we started the podcast yeah that's cool yeah i think i stumbled across it just randomly like it didn't even I don't know how I came across it because it wasn't one of those that pops up. It's recommended or anything. I don't know how I right. found it. And it was maybe two years ago now. I don't know. But I think I've probably listened yeah. to all of them. Was the first one. Oh, cool. It was about, was it about Twin Peaks? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I still yeah. remember, vaguely remember that one, but yeah. Yeah. That one's, it was called Garmin Bosia. Okay. And yeah. Um, yeah. And it's all about Twin Peaks and Hiroshima and all that. Um, yeah. So it's making these kind of crazy connections and really focuses on the famous episode eight of, of season three, the return of Twin Peaks. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, that was the first episode. Yeah. Cool. That's I'm cool. glad that you're, it's good to know that you're a listener. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Yeah. Was <laughs> no, no. I've listened for a while. That's why I said I'm kind of, I was kind of nervous about this because I'm like, I've listened to Cause I've really enjoyed your podcast a lot. It's probably uh, my, I was, telling my friend mitch earlier i was like the think the weird studies podcast and a lot of jonathan Peugeot's stuff are probably my favorite mm. two favorite things to listen and i like your guys format yeah. too because it just feels very um casual like you guys are just friends talking but then at the same time you yeah guys, i think it's is it your brother or phil's brother that does the music uh, my brother yeah Pierre -Yves martel yeah he's in montreal yeah he does all the music yeah it's like perfect music for the show too it just really adds to uh, the vibe yeah. of it yeah yeah he's been releasing it as an album like he, he's been like 
expanding tracks he did for us and like releasing he's got two volumes of this stuff now out That's there cool. so if you're interested um his band camp uh you can just look up like just google weird studies band camp and it'll come up first thing his name is pierre pierre Yves martel yeah and uh he does he does all kinds of stuff he's a really amazing musician i'm not okay. i'm not just saying that because he's my brother he's actually good <laughs> yeah um, yeah yeah so no we, we we were super happy to find that you know you know you find a little you can't do these things on your own even with just like so we've got my brother is helping us i had a friend of mine do our logo and that sort of thing um and then and then Meredith, who's our kind of assistant, there's like a crew now, the Weird Studies crew, which is nice. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, what were you guys, uh, I guess if you just want to touch on that again, you just recently got done, got, got done traveling, uh, you said, yeah. over in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, we, we were we we were invited to participate in the Diverse Intelligences Summer Institute. Um which is an, the initiative of, a, of, a, of two uh, social scientists from UCLA, Eric Cart Mills, an anthropologist, Jacob Foster is a sociologist. They're both at UCLA. And they started this, this yearly summer institute uh, called uh, the Diverse Intelligences Summer Institute, uh, which takes place in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews, where um, Erica studied. And so they invited us to go up there and do some talks and, and also record a live show. Uh, it was fantastic. Nice. And then, That's cool. so, yeah. And then our, our publisher, strange attractor press, um, uh, well, I should say Mark Pilkington of strange attractor press invited us or s- set up this thing where we could do a, a live show at the Supernormal experimental arts festival, which is down in near Oxford or like the, yeah, between Oxford and Reading. So we went down there after the conference and did a live show there. And it was fantastic. That's it was cool. great. Yeah. When we did the live show at the festival, there was a, a a punk band called, or like a thrash band, I guess, called the Plastics. And they were late uh, getting to the festival. So they started their set at the same time as we started our recording. So like the first 20 minutes or 30 minutes of our show, is just like you can hear this like ambient thrash. <laughs> That's great. Punk punk music in the background and uh fortunately they gave us permission to release our show with their music um, oh nice so we're, that's going to come out as a as an episode in, in a few weeks okay cool i'll, I'll yeah. be watching for it yeah um yeah, i don't know how much of um that's why i'm not really sure where to go to here i'd like to dig into something with you because i don't know you know sure i'll get to talk to you again but then i don't know if it'd be good for you to well, share what's... some of your backstory too or what or, I, I don't know yeah i mean well, it can come up but tell me about your your channel because i've been you know i I listen to some stuff i'm trying to figure out where you're going it's really not it's really interesting what you're doing what's why did you start this thing um and i don't know i started it a long time ago i started just i was like well maybe i should just try uh doing a podcast basically just because i wanted to pick other people's brains um because i was just uh i think everybody's just got a really interesting way of seeing things and uh that people are can always see things you miss and stuff like that so i just thought well it'd be cool to get just start a podcast and get some interesting topics and then and then when i um interviewed one of my friends this was kind of the beginning of it well the first episode we did was just about it was just me and my cousins kind of talking just random recording and then i think what kind of i think gave it the push was when i 
talked to one of another guy I knew that had uh, just come back from a missions trip and he was sharing his story. And I was just like, I should just get people's stories. And then it just, over the years, kind of just developed into, now it's just kind of a hodgepodge of just almost random conversations where we'll just think of something. And sometimes we don't even have a topic. And uh, yeah. like my, my friend Kyle just texted me a, f- a few minutes ago and said, hey, does anybody want to do a conversation tonight? And then just no topic. We'll just see what we dig into. A lot of it kind of revolves around philosophy, theology, and universalism kind of comes up a lot in our conversations as well but universe like theological universalism yeah yeah that all shall that all shall be saved universal yeah or i guess you um it's not quite like i think a lot of people think at first because almost everybody i talk to that says they're universalist uh really affirms hell so it's not like that in a way but it's just kind of the the idea that even punish any sort of punishment is um, restorative, and it would yeah. eventually ultimate reconciliation, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So that that comes up a lot, but yeah, it's a. I don't know. Are you familiar with that, or? Oh yeah. Okay. Very much. Yeah. Very much. <laughs> I mean, very much. And I'm I'm not like an expert in it, but I'm very interested in the topic. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah. What's his name? R- wrote a great book on the subject. Um. I always forget his name. Rob Bell, um, Richard Rohr. There's a few of them, I think, that write about. Yeah, yeah Richard Rohr is great. No, I'm thinking of um, Jesus. I don't know what's yeah. wrong with me tonight. The names. <laughs> well, I don't. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I don't really know any of them. That's what David fr- Bentley Hart. Oh, okay. Yeah, my, yeah, my yeah. friend Cal and I think Luke. A lot of a lot of them will bring his name up a lot, but I've never read anything. That's what Cal told me the other day. He was like, "Your problem is you just you don't read anything." Like I just read. It's probably about five years ago now. I think I started coming back to Christianity, and so I just just will read the scriptures over and over and over. And then I grew up yeah, reading yeah. Ca- reading Calvin and Hobbes, so that's about my my level of education. There. Well, well I went to school for a pretty solid but... foundation. <laughs> yeah, right. I love yeah, Calvin and I mean, Hobbes. Yeah. I still think it's great. Next <laughs> time somebody gives you trouble for that, like uh, you know, Henrik Ibsen. Henrik Ibsen was a Norwegian playwright. Uh, late 19th, early 20th century, I believe, like late romantic, um, early modern kind of uh, playwright. And um, he, at some point in his life, so I've heard, he just stopped reading books. And um, from then on, he would just, he would go to a coffee shop in the morning and read the, the newspaper of the day, uh, front to back, like including all the classifieds and everything. He just read the whole paper and he read the Bible. That's all he read. And um, he's like, that gives me everything I need. I get the latest from what's going on out there. And I get like the foundation of everything. That's really cool. Yeah. 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 That's how I found the Bible to be. It's just inexhaustible too. It's just, if you ever don't have a topic, you could just flip it open somewhere and it's uh, full of mysteries. So it's just, I don't know. Definitely. But but it is interesting to me too, that uh, the more I read it, the more it, it leads me to these conclusions where like people will be like oh that's what david bentley hart says and i'm like oh it's just what the bible says i guess if you just stick with it or these certain ideas seem to come up so yeah 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 well it's all in there so (laughs) yeah um it's like uh you know um alfred north whitehead said that all philosophy is footnotes to plato have you ever heard that expression? So that all all the philosophy is just people commenting on what Plato did, 
like he kind of just covered the whole range of possible thought and we're just kind of refining or exploring little nooks yeah picking at it yeah. but you can make a, a similar argument obviously for for the the bible in the sense that it really is the foundation of the civilization of the west at least as it exists or as as it has existed now for a couple of thousand years so yeah um 1500 years i should say yeah so it's it's like it, it is inexhaustible like all great art it's inexhaustible um mm-hmm. uh you know there are people who um you know it, there are people who treat like lord of the rings or like uh tolkien's work in the in a similar way like yeah um i i'm not saying that they're equally valid i think that well obviously token would argue that his work derives heavily from the bible and other mythological systems and but there's something about art that's inexhaustible like a good work mm-hmm. of art kind of like you can easily base a whole life around like van gogh's sunflowers that could be your scripture and you could do something with that i don't know if it would lead you to a good place <laughs> <laughs> but it, it it is inexhaustible you know you could keep you could keep doing something with that you know yeah yeah because yeah. it's like it's in its own way it's kind of living and or it yeah, should be exactly I guess, if it's good art, it should be i guess yeah yeah and if it's good art it's it's living for sure yeah 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 i guess the artist can maybe have a way of killing it it's kind of I, I mean i could be wrong in saying that but that's kind of what i think if you try to pin it down too much you know you don't oh yeah like let that, it let it live sort of well that's that's one of the main arguments in the book i wrote which is that because it's called art um reclaiming art in the age of artifice and so there's a, a dichotomy or distinction there between art and artifice and and a lot of what's called art i argue uh is actually artifice in the sense that it contains its own interpretation right it yeah. it forces a particular forces your mind down a particular groove that it mm-hmm. contains and so it's it's not inexhaustible it's fully exhaustible yeah um you know you think of like a like a milk commercial or something like that you know yeah. Yeah. um but or or a lot of concept art a lot of the stuff that you know wins prizes today in the art world i would argue is just it's just concept there's no yeah. affect there there's no symbol um yeah. and uh and so yeah you're right it, it can you know the the artist if the artist doesn't kill it then the world will make sure it at least looks dead you know like um think of something like the mona lisa which you know on any day you can go to the louvre in, in, in paris and you'll see like just reams of people trying to get in there to snap a picture of the mona lisa and nobody actually looks at it um, in a way, by putting the art on this on full display, encasing it in glass, and um, reprinting it uh, in every textbook, uh, it's another way of neutering it. You know, because yeah. it, eventually there's a, there's a patina of interpretation develops around it, like a crust of pre-digested thought, and develops yeah. it, and then it's really hard to break through. But I always imagine, like you know the custodian at the Louvre at night, just you know, mopping the floor and suddenly looking up and seeing it for the first time, even though he's been working there for 20 years and yeah. maybe having, maybe having a heart attack and dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd probably think he's seen a ghost or a spirit or something. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so one other, I forgot to mention this too, the other author I've read, and I didn't start reading him till I think last year or the year before, and I've read almost at least everything fictional I can get my hands on. I haven't read all his unspoken sermons, but it's George MacDonald. So, um, mm. so yeah, I, I noticed I, that looking at your channel. Yeah, I haven't so, read any of this stuff. Oh man, you should. It's it's amazing. One, if you pick up um, his book Fantasties, um, I guess he was an influence on Tolkien and C.S. Oh, yeah, Lewis, and that's why that's why it kind of reminded me of that. And he has a quote. George MacDonald has a quote where he says, "Truth is truth, whether out of the mouth of Jesus or the mouth of Balaam." And so it kind right. of reminded me of when you're talking about Tolkien and people, how people get truth out of his works. And it's almost this inexhaustible thing because he's just, it's truth is truth. And it, it is, uh, yeah, it's there to exactly. just chip yeah. away at for eternity. But yeah, his stuff, yeah. his book, Fantasties is I think my favorite, but, um, Lilith, his book, Lilith is probably one of the most profound books I've ever read. I've never and it's heard just, about it. Yeah. It's, yeah. that would be a good weird studies it's it's a trip yeah. it's definitely it's set in the spirit realm so like two things will be the same thing and you're like the first time i read it i had no idea what was going on until about two-thirds through the book and then it started to click together and i was like oh my goodness. but it's oh it's wow a, yeah it's fun it's a good one yeah i keep running into his name uh reading of the history of weird fiction and history of, of fantasy and speculative fiction he's always there but for some reason i don't know if it's just because he has a boring name <laughs> <laughs> um like george mcdonald yeah. i don't know why it is but i've never actually picked up any of his works i should definitely look into that I yeah if you, if you just yeah. read uh like the first chapter of fantasies you might be oh, uh, i mean lilith yeah. lilith uh fantasies what drew me to him and i i think c.s lewis said that was the book that baptized his imagination um wow and so yeah, he could, C.S. Lewis got it, gave it pretty high praise too. But that one I think drew me in um, because it's just that that one's set in fairyland. So it's more of a fairy tale, which I think I'm kind of drawn right. to that stuff a little more. Um, and Lilith is a, it's, it's a trip, um, but it'll, I mean, it pulls you in too. It's just, um, I, I almost feel like it's a little bit harder, harder read. Uh, Challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a character in it who speaks in riddles a lot and you're just kind of like, what's going on so you got it right but it's it's kind of fun because he he starts off the book and there's a line in there and he says something like i was reading in my library and i came to the part of the book where i had to put down the book and think about like pause and think about what i was reading and meditate on it and then it's like right after that the next chapter it's like he's hitting you with these riddles where you're like you're like having to do the same thing so he kind of like introduces you with this idea of like taking it slow and and then you find yourself doing it the next chapter, but I don't know. He's a, cool. yeah, he's, it's, he's one I would probably, well, recommend, but like I said, I'm not well read. So I don't know that and Calvin no, and Hobbes uh, get on it. Yeah. I've read Calvin and Hobbes. Well, um, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So I read, I, I didn't grow up with Calvin and Hobbes. I'm, I'm French Canadian. So I didn't really learn to read or speak English till I was nine or 10. Um, so what, I, what do you read there? Asterix and Alpha. What did we read? Yeah. Yeah. Asterix. Really? We read the Tintin. Okay. Um, and I used to, I was obsessed with, uh, as a kid, um, this is pre-English. Like when I, when I turned 10, I got Lord of the Rings. Um, and I, I, I kind of learned English reading it. Um, 
because I didn't want to read it in translation. But before that, when I was younger, I read, yeah, there was Tintin, Asterix, um, uh, those fighting fantasy books from the 80s. I don't know if you know about those. They're like choose your own adventure books, but they're a little bit more involved. Like they involve dice and stuff like a game. Okay. Um, I read tons of those books. I was obsessed with those books. And to the nice. point where when I finally started reading real novels, I couldn't believe that I couldn't decide what the character did, you know, because I was so used to these like game books That's where you funny. get to choose what the, <laughs> what the character does. Um, so uh, I was obsessed with those as a, as a, as a kid. Um, and, you know, a lot, of, I read a lot of uh, history books or geography, that sort of thing, or the, like I had this really awesome collection of biographies of like great people, um, I think it was translated from American English. It was an American collection. So, um, but they had like one on Confucius and one on um, one on Socrates, one on uh, like Thomas Jefferson. There's all these like you know great personages of history. Mary Curie. Anyways, so you, I just I was kind of obsessed with those books too. And astronomy, you know, like every like a lot of boys, I was really into astronomy and and. Uh, um machines and that sort of stuff That's so cool. but yeah i was a big reader but um the fact that my experience of fiction began with essentially began with like aside from comic books it was like choose your own adventure books fighting fantasy books and then actual dungeons and dragons books because i i started playing dungeons and dragons around nine years old i was nine years old um it it really threw a wrench into my artistic wheel to a certain extent because like i said like for me art was participatory like it was something you did with other people mm -hmm. because or 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 with the book like the book let you in and let you decide so when i started like writing fiction and writing uh, screenplays as my my late teens early 20s it always felt like it wasn't the real thing. The real thing would be writing, you know, um, a game, a fiction game, like a role-playing game. So finally now I'm doing that, which is really exciting. That's cool. But yeah. 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 Anyway, so that's a long answer to your question about <laughs> what I read as a kid. But yeah. No, that's really cool. Did you ever, I got to ask it. Did you ever read any um, uh, Andre Norton? uh no I oh, okay all right that's that's fine i haven't no. either i was just i was just oh, asked because no. you mentioned dungeon and dragons and i thought she had um she was my like my grandmother's aunt i think and she wrote a lot of oh. like, fiction books that i think i've heard had a little bit of influence on like those games but i don't know if that's true or not but, oh cool but yeah we were her name I, is andre norton yeah andre norton okay. she wrote, first started writing under andrew north her name's her real name's Alice, but she start, wrote under Andrew North and then changed it to Andre Norton. But she wrote tons of books, okay. and I I never read any of them. But um, huh? Yeah, like fantasy books. Yeah, yeah, fic uh, science fiction, fantasy. Yeah. So okay, but cool. I, yeah, I don't know. Some people, some people know her. It's weird. Like some people, I I didn't know her because I didn't even think she was popular because we just I I never really even knew her growing up at all, and then she died while back but um i mentioned her name somehow her name came up to one of my friends in like high school one time and he was like what the heck how are you related to her because like, she wrote i guess like the beast master and lots of different things that he knew about and i beast no master. 
Yeah, I never, I was like, I've never read any of this stuff, man. In the Witch World, she wrote like a Witch World series or something like that. But oh yeah, here she is. Um, you know, I'm I've never been as like deeply immersed in fiction enough, like in any particular genre enough to know like all the authors, like all yeah. even all the major ones. I kind of have a superficial um so that's cool. I'm looking at her web, uh, Wikipedia page now. And yeah, she's written tons of stuff. Yeah, it's insane. I don't know how she did it. It's uh, it probably her witchcraft, was, you know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was an FWA grandmaster. I don't know what that means. I don't know. Uh, science fiction fantasy writers of America grandmaster. Uh, they oh. would. They used to. Sounds I don't know cool. if they still do this, but they used to rank writers like uh, with the same system as they use in chess. Like oh, okay. the grandmaster Dang. or the master so Dang. she was like a grandmaster of that yeah fantastic that's cool cool i don't know yeah. um so did yeah, you say so, you're you're making a yeah. game now you're creating a game um or? well no um writing supplements for a game oh, so okay. yeah to to be to explain what that means and i have to get into all, like what tabletop role-playing games are i don't know if you're familiar with them um like dungeons and dragons and that i sort wish of I wish I was because I got the chance to yeah. play it once in high school. It was, but it was the yeah. Star Wars version. But it was the like, oh, one yeah. of the funnest things I've ever done. It was so much fun, <laughs> and we only it's played like one fun. session, and then we never did that's, it again. And I was like, Man. "That's too bad." Yeah, yeah, but. that's a lot of fun. Yeah, um, so I'm I'm writing. I, I mean, I we Peter Bieber Peter Biebergall and I. Um, so he's an author. You can look him up. He's a very very talented writer smart guy um wrote a book called uh uh strange frequencies which is just coming out next month on paperback uh if you want to look into it it's a it's a cool kind of um exploration of the way technology and magic are connected and the occult um anyways peter Biebergall and i wrote an adventure for the call of cthulhu game last year okay yeah. um yeah so you know, there's a game and then you'll have adventures that you can use in the game if you want. So yeah. it's kind of like writing setting and characters and stuff, but you, there's no plot. You leave the plot up to the the group that'll play the game. So yeah, that's all cool. the fun parts of writing fiction and none of the it's plotting to me has always been the least in, an interesting part really? of writing a story. Why yeah. is that? Is it just oh, it, it's it reduces it, you think, or it takes a life away or? Um, well, I mean, I don't know, like, it's funny, because we just, um, Phil and I were just talking about this on the latest Patreon extra for the, for the, for the weird oh, well, don't Patreon share it here, page. then don't share it here. We got to get you subscribers. They'll know what they're missing. If I tell <laughs> okay. Them. Um, so, um, my, I think this has to do with what I was talking about earlier with the role playing games and, and what, what I, like let's say i'm watching a film by stan by let's stan kubrick or andre tarkovsky like a great cinematic gem you know like um tarkovsky is a great example so you watch stalker and there's a moment in stalker where the camera is just tracking it's like pointed down at, at like a flooded room it looks like you just see like there's this tiled floor and, and a bit of water um flooding whatever room this is in, you never get to see exactly where we are. And then there's all these old objects like a, 
I can't remember what, like an old pocket watch and little things under the water on the tiled floor. And the camera just tracks up through this space for a while until finally it arrives at the edge of a kind of pond where one of the characters is lying down. Anyways, it's a fantastic, amazing, dreamy, kind of beautiful shot. And then that shot to me makes Stalker, that and several others. The, the plot or the story of Stalker for me is much less interesting than these moments that occur that 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 occur in the context of that story. So for me, plot is like it exists only to allow for digressions. <laughs> um, so what's magical in a story for me are, are the, is the event, the, the sudden emergence of an image or of a character of a moment. Um, but the machinery of plot, especially when I can predict it, when I feel, Oh, I'm reading an Epic book and that's how it'll end. Like I can't watch a Marvel movie or DC. Like I can't watch that stuff. Um, first movie I ever fell asleep watching was like one of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Like it was at the time it was as, explosive as you could as you could imagine it was like this crazy now the, the the new movies leave that one in the dust in terms of just like sheer you know cutting frenzy cutting you know editorial uh, uh, frenzied um of, of action whatever so but at the time uh that movie was pretty explosive and i just it just put me right to sleep i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't remain awake watching that because i could it was so obvious that Spider-Man was going to win, like, obviously, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, but it seems like it's built around trying to create the suspense in me that he might fail, but that's like, because it's Spider-Man, I precisely know that he will win. So why is the story built around suspense or this like kind of thrill of like, there is no thrill. I, I know what, you know, <laughs> yeah. I just get bored with plot and I'm not saying I'm right here. This is just an idiosyncrasy of mine, but I, I, um, yeah, plot is the least interesting part of of storytelling for me. The most interesting part is is setting and character. I love setting and character. And like I was saying on that extra, you know, you watch Game of Thrones, the team, the show, or you read the book Song of Ice and Fire, and what's so? I mean, think what you will of the violence and the kind of. Oh, I love the like, show. You can yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I love that show. I read too. I read my Bible all the time, but I love that show. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's the great show. <laughs> and one of the reasons it's so good is that there's no plot. I mean, there's plot in the last two seasons when George R. R. George R. R. Martin had left, and they had to wrap it up. And that's where people started, you know, because whether they knew it or not, what well, was so uh, incredibly affective in the first five seasons was the fact that there was no plot. There was just characters doing what they do. Yeah. And and it all comes together in these amazing events that no one can predict. Like even a main character could die. Like there yeah. was no, nobody had any plot armor as they call it. You know, plot yeah. armor means that okay. you can't die because you're the hero. Mm -hmm. um, nobody had plot, plot, plot armor. So, um, and that's why I love that show. You know, that's why yeah. I love it. And shows like the, like the Sopranos and, you know, a lot of the, the HBO masterpieces you know uh, the wire um what was the other one breaking bad i've heard is really good i haven't seen all these shows but i suspect that i mean they've always said you know you, you'll read this a lot in books about the medium is that tv is about character you know whereas films are about plots and i think it's by and large kind of it's often the case uh great tv gives you the chance to go so deeply 
and so so in depth with your characterizations because you get these long arcs to develop characters. So plot is much less important. Whereas films, well, with a film, it has to wrap up in ninety minutes or one hundred twenty minutes. So you yeah. kind of have to at some point, yeah, as a writer, you kind of have to bring it all together, and make it fit. Yeah. So that's my yeah. That's no, my that's favorite. good. That's good. I, I see what you mean by plot. I think when I was when you first said the word, my mind was thinking just the story in general, and I was like, well. What do you no, have if your no, characters aren't doing anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that makes sense. I think I, it makes sense a lot with writing too, right? I mean, once you, or at least with good writing, I've heard that, um, and even trying to write a little bit, you kind of experience that of if you're actually going to be honest with your characters, they kind of do their own thing. Like you, if yeah. you try to if you try to make them do something, it's just awful. It's just like yeah. you you go back and read it later, and you're like, what the heck is this? This is the worst writing ever. But if you actually let them uh it's like a weird communion with the characters and you yeah, you totally. discover them yeah 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 well the character becomes a kind of uh like uh what's the word kind of a fragmented part of yourself and mm -hmm. so it has it's what what carl jung would call an autonomous complex it's it, it is another person that you you know in great fiction those characters are actual people as you know like for example raskolnikov the main character of crime and punishment and dostoevsky is as real as dostoevsky um uh was as real as dostoevsky when dostoevsky was writing him but now even more so since they're both like dostoevsky is gone raskolnikov is just as you know they're both imaginal beings at this point and they're yeah. both as alive in fact, one is very much alive in the well, book. Probably That's more so. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the author kind of haunts the book. Too, you know? <laughs> That's, you know? That's so... a great way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> but they're both around, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think that uh, fictional characters can become very much as alive as 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 um as the authors. <laughs> yeah. In fact, like some fictional characters are obviously uh they 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 exist outside their original fictional context think of someone like sherlock holmes right like sherlock holmes is is a lot of people think he's a historical character yeah. because he's so real for us he and a lot of people you feel he's he's real whether or not you read the stories he's just like he's sherlock holmes it's uh, you know. yeah um it's cool so yeah yeah, he's like a mythological creature, like a god or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So, is this what you normally like to talk about? Like, do you get into? I remember asking you an email. It's like you said, I, uh, you said what you normally like talking about will probably eventually bleed through. And so, oh, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I love talking about stories and art for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, since you've listened to most of the episodes of Weird Studies, that's pretty much what i like talking about yeah um um yeah i'm i'm really like i'm really interested in in philosophy as well but for me i really try and make an effort to see philosophy as a form of art as a kind of even as a narrative art you know one of my reading tricks is to this is something you kind of, like, kind of psychological trick you can try out if you if you grab a book of nonfiction read it as though it were fiction read it as though it was it was like an in-story document that somebody found in a book and 
yeah. the author just went off and wrote the whole thing and you, you're reading it in a, in a, and then when you read fiction, That's read so it like it's nonfiction. And just by doing that, you kind of uh, short circuit some, some, some cultural stuff that, that puts you in a particular mindset when you're reading, let's say philosophy, like philosophy is boring maybe, but if this philosophy were the were were a kind of form of science fiction, it suddenly becomes interesting again. Like it becomes interesting when I read it as science fiction. That's really that's interesting. It's hard to yeah, explain. Yeah, that's fascinating. Like, that seems like a really good practice. I don't know. And for some reason, as you said that, me. it reminded me of um, like just parables. Like you're kind of taking a work, right. a thing of history, and looking at the parabolic aspect of it. Um, Correct. Which I but think fact, is true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a perfect uh, way of looking at it because a parable isn't a metaphor. Yeah. A parable not. is like, yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, it's, it's weird. Cause it's like, it's fiction and it's true at the same time. And it's almost more exactly. true. It's really weird. Yeah. It's hard to, yeah. When people reduce it to just a metaphor, it's like, you're not, you don't get it. It's, it's a, uh, everything's parabolic in this weird way and yeah. everything. Yeah. Which it's totally. true. It's true yeah. in it's fiction and nonfiction at the same time. So, yeah, it's myth, you know. Yeah, in the in in the original sense, not myth as in like, oh, that's just a myth, but myth as in mythos, like uh, it's the 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 aesthetic stuff of of which we're made, the archetypes and all that. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean even. <clears throat> you think back on your life, even the shape you give your own life in memory is already a kind of fiction, not in the sense that it's false, but in the sense that there's a selection going on. Um, you know, people yeah. have a tendency to see themselves a certain way and they have the memories to back that up or they have memories that contradict how they want to see themselves. Either way, there's a selection going on, right? You don't mm -hmm. remember every instant of your life. You remember like how many times have you made coffee? Do you yeah. drink coffee? Yeah. You've made coffee thousands of times in your life, but there's a kind of a one generic coffee making memory that will just be the placeholder. If you ever think about, Oh, what did I do that day? Or I made coffee that day, but you don't remember that particular instance. You remember coffee making in general, yeah. but we select and we build a kind of imaginal uh, um, narrative of who we are so we're already always already deeply in fiction and that's mm -hmm. not to say that everything's fake it's just that reality is kind of in irreducibly aesthetic to a certain extent right yeah 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 i completely yeah. agree and it's weird you don't yeah. really notice it in the moment though i feel like most of the stuff i or at least i don't the most of the things i i feel like i'll notice in hindsight kind of like you're talking about when yeah. you're looking back and and remembering things even when people say stuff about like they don't see where God has been in their life. And then, but if you just, or like angels or, or like weird studies, weird experiences, sometimes you don't notice them. And then you look back and you're like, wait, this is, this is really yeah something, something yeah. magical was going on here. And, and then if you happen there. Yeah. yeah. And if you actually acknowledge it, uh, which weird, it's weird. Um, I feel like when you actually acknowledge it and almost purposely fictionalize it or, make it a bit fantastical it almost rings more true it's really strange 
I don't yeah. know if that makes sense. What oh, I'm oh saying, absolutely. But I, okay. I'll, I'll give you a, a kind of, no, no, I think you're, you're onto something. I totally agree. One thing that I've often, I've, I've mentioned in the past on the show and, and I don't know how clear it was. It's like, um, if you've had the fortune of living in like a different city and come back to your hometown or whatever, if you lived at, let's say you spent some time living in New York city or whatever in the past, <clears throat> there's a kind of feeling to that time, but you don't really know how New York city, your time in New York city felt until you're gone. Then you look back and you go, Oh, that was the feeling that was around. That was the kind of mood or the kind of like uh palette of that time. Yeah. And you know that it was there when you were there because you're remembering, you're feeling what it was. But at, the th at that time, you were probably reminiscing about the mood of when you lived in like Tallahassee or something. <laughs> so like you weren't feeling it. We're always kind of stuck between the past and uh -huh. the present and the future. We kind of span it all. But then we... um it's like waking up in a dream. It's like, you know, you'll have a lucid dream. My daughter was telling me she had a lucid dream a few days ago because she went back to bed in the morning. And then, of course, that's you're more likely to get those when you, you know, you're napping or going back to bed. Anyways, she uh, she kept forgetting she was dreaming and then remembering. I think life's a little bit like that. We keep forgetting that we're dreaming and then we wake up to how weird it all is. And then, of course, you especially in cases where something paranormal happens or something weird, something, some angelic visitation or whatever it is, or demonic visitation. Those are quite memorable. Yeah. Um, you know, you suddenly realize sometimes after the fact, sometimes when, when it's happening, it doesn't feel quite real. And it's only when you look back on it that you go, what the hell was that? And, you know, <laughs> and that's when it kind of hits you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even no, in I, dreams I I, too. I it's love weird. What you're saying. Yeah. yeah, even yeah. how dreams do that. It's just so strange how certain dreams will, yeah, you might think, oh, it's just a dream. And then, I don't know, two years later, you look back and you're like, oh, God, that was not just a dream. Like that was right. something. Yeah. And then the same thing with uh, things that aren't fictional. Like you said, it's, uh, yeah, it's got this this weird yeah, way of yeah. working. And even you, how you were talking about living in New, New York, there's a certain feel to it. And so if you were, I guess maybe that's kind of what I'm getting at too. If you were to look back on, say you spent like two weeks in New York and then two years later, you look back on it and you try to write about it or remember it, you would want to, if you were just true to the feeling, you'd almost kind of write it in a weird, almost fictional way. And then it would almost yeah. be more true. And then more people could yeah. inhabit it. Cause if you just wrote, I would in New York, well, maybe these people haven't been to New York, but if they were in that, essence or that space the feeling yeah like a, I, yeah, I don't know that's really well said yeah i think you're absolutely right that's exactly what i'm getting at is that there's a kind of uh you know a philosopher that i really like that you've probably heard me mention him before is Gilles Deleuze, a french philosopher and he wrote it about his his big obsession and one of them was the event you know but the the event is the untimely eruption of the virtual into the actual so like yeah. um it's like when you look back, you see what it was all about. You see the event of your stay in New York, for example. But that event was not any particular incident that took place there. But it was like this virtual, this virtuality hovering over the entire thing. And yeah. only once you're out of it, can you look back and see what it was. And great writing, I think, specifically 
our great poetry is about capturing that event, yeah. you know, uh-huh. capturing what it was that wasn't in any of the details, but was kind of like, um, you know, looming above it all. Yeah. Yeah. As the, uh, yeah. I like yeah. that you use that word poetry because it's kind of, yeah, it's like, there's this weird poetic essence. In yeah. The, I like you're talking about. There's this uh, essay yeah. I read a while back. It was by George MacDonald and, it's one of those there's sometimes I read things and I'm just like, gosh, it's so hard for me to read. I don't know why, but uh, it's there's it sticks with you, though. Like I noticed it'll stick with me, but he was going on about and he's not the first one to write about this, but the difference between poetry and, pro- and prose and stuff like that. No. Yeah, there's like even in our words, in the language we use, it kind of kills the imagination over if you're being too particular and overuse of it. And there's like even in the words we use, it's just a, a body. For like a poetic thought and it's like you're talking about there's a poetic thought or spirit or feel or something in the air that if you're true to that it's it's that you're getting closer to the truth in general of yeah. the, the circumstance that you whatever yeah. happening event the event yeah oh it's very very cool um paul clay the painter said that art was about making the invisible visible and the invisible is that event is the event you know Um, yeah you look again at like something that you know a paul clay painting and you can see that he was really trying to capture the event um and and that that requires a lot of fabulation and and trickery and uh you know another another artist who spoke about this is uh werner herzog the filmmaker and uh he makes a distinction between what he calls ecstatic truth, which would be like what we're describing as the event, the invisible in the visible. Um, he made a distinction between that and what he called uh, factual truth, or the, or he calls it the truth of accountants. And the yeah. truth of accountants is like, oh, yeah, I went to New York. I took this train. I got off at this station. I went to this hotel. I had this for breakfast, uh, you know, and, you know, you kind of just catalog the events and it's like, well, if I can get minute enough, then I'll have a full record of my trip, but it'll just be a sequence of disconnected, not, uh, you know, trivial things. Um, um, And, and so that's, that'd be like the truth of accountants, the factual truth, but then the, the, the ecstatic truth is what it was like to be in New York, what it signified. Yeah. Um, what you'll find in a, in a great poem, poem about that or a great novel or film. You yeah. Know. I wouldn't even know. Where would you, do you have any suggestions where you'd begin with that? I was trying to go through my head, like run through my head and think of, if I was in New York. How would I describe this with like maybe sounds and smells and shapes? I don't yeah. know. What are you thinking? You got any ideas? Uh, I think about New York specifically. Yeah, like if you were just trying to describe, like I don't know, uh, yeah, if you had an afternoon in New New York, how would you describe that politically? Well, I've I haven't I've only been to New York City once. Well, but you've been there in spirit. See, we're talking about the essence of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, but I can't help but go to the time I was actually there. Oh, okay. Um, it was very, very cold when I was there. It's very cold. Um, I don't know. I'd have to find the way of uh, a way of of getting there. And that's the hard work of art. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's not easy. Um, yeah, but it makes me kind of think of, of Gotham City. Like for some reason, they 
it has a that well, has a Gotham very, is based on New York. Yeah. yeah, and it has a very I think some of it was filmed in Chicago. I've been to Chicago, but they have a that the imagery in like the Dark Knight movies has I feel like it kind of gets at the feeling of the city as well. Or normally yes. Gotham City does that. It's very dark, very yeah. 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 The time when I was there it was quite dark and it was like <laughs> early winter. Um I, I really love the feeling I'm getting. And when I was there, I ended up going to the, ooh, what's it called? There's a, a German museum, German art gallery museum there. Um, if you just you could probably easily find it. Anyways, I went to this, like the new something gallery. I can't remember. Went there. They had a um, Alfred Cuban exhibition. Alfred Cuban was, uh, uh, I guess, a German uh, artist. Um, maybe he was Austrian uh really really interesting and so and they had a klimt there uh the kiss i think it was the kiss or was it the one of huh see it's so weird i saw this like crazy rare painting and i can't remember if it was the kiss or uh the one what's it called athena or something by klimt see my i can remember the scene with both paintings on the wall and i don't know <laughs> But the Klimt really struck me, whatever it was. <laughs> so that 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 particular part of the trip really kind of just colored the whole thing for me. Okay, so yeah. if I were to write about New York, I would do it in a kind of aesthetic of Alfred Cuban and and Gust uh, and and Klimt. I would kind yeah. of that would come in, and I you know it's not the idea isn't that my version of New York would be like the definitive New York. Obviously, yeah, yeah. Be highly subjective and idiosyncratic. But how could New York be anything but that? New yeah. York is a like several million people and, and so you can only have a a, a very unique perspective on yeah. the object but that perspective also has an objectivity to it for instance if you see a blimp you know flying across your yard i mean it's just your your particular the people on the in the blimp and the other people are getting a totally different experience but that doesn't make the blimp just a subjective event so my New York with like Alfred Cuban, like, like uh, redesigning everything is, is no less the objective New York than yeah, yeah. New York of like Oscar the Grouch, you know, or Big yeah, Bird. Yeah. <laughs> like they used blimp of all the, all the things you could use. I guess I don't know what else you'd use. That was a good example. I was just like, man, I don't hear that word very often. I just said, well, what, what's something that you see that has a definite shape, like very <laughs> a geometric objective, and yet that you can't touch? Like you have to just see it, a blimp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, but I like what you said, though. Because even, but then if you wrote of your experience in New York, it's like if you, it's almost like if you left out the fact that you were in New York and just, wrote about your experience like you're talking about then it's it's more more transcendent in a way and more people can inhabit it that way it can uh yeah because if you're like if it had to be in new york then it like you said it starts putting it in a box and uh containing it and uh what was the you said it a while back it's it could like only be interpret you're defining the interpretation and so it's less yeah it's less exactly. less alive at that point you're killing it in a way but yeah yeah but if you're if if it's gonna if it's gonna rise above the other all the endless you know innumerable accounts of new york out there it's it's because if it's good art good poetry it 
actually attains to the objective. It's not just that you're true to your own experience, but in being true to your experience to that degree and in being able, and this is the hard part of, of transposing that experience into your medium, then you finally get something where you're like, oh, when people read your work and then go to New York, they'll go, holy shit, that's exactly yeah. what he was writing about. I know what he was saying or I know what she was writing about. And it, it, that's the weird objectivity of art. You know, we yeah. always talk about art as subjective, but if art is completely subjective, then it's literally worthless. Um, Deleuze described art as a science of the sensible meaning that it's a science. It's just a science that operates through the sensible instead of through the mental. Um, it works yeah. with what philosophers dismissively call secondary qualities, the things that are seem to be just subjective, like color and smell, things that you need a person there to, for, the, for them to kind of exist. But those things are turned into objective uh, qualities of the world in art. And art, in a way, art is constantly reminding us that we're dreaming, you know? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Science of the sensible. That's a, I'm going to yeah. think on that. That's a good one to think on for a while. Yeah. yeah. That, think about that, it. I have a question with that then too, because you mentioned the uh, science relating to magic as well. So how does that play in with art being the science of the sensible and magic being related to science? Is there a way to pile that in? Uh, yeah. Um, there surely there must be um because part i mean part ma of magic thinks... magic is a tricky word what do you what do you because uh, we could are we could we could be talking we could be using the word magic in totally different ways that's true that's true yeah. um i don't know how um how would you define it do you have a certain definition you like Noah? um well what's alistair crowley's definition is uh, oh. magic know. is the how does he put it it's something like does he is he the one that says it's kind of like you're trying to impose your will on a scenario scenario yeah but he he doesn't really mean it that way yeah that sounds a little uh, harsh the, in that way so yeah here we go he says magic is the science and art nice. of causing change in causing of causing change to occur in conformity with will okay so that, um that sounds a that's bit a, that's just more manipulative yeah and i don't know um because to yeah. me, I, I would think I would personally think poetry could almost be a form of magic in that it does it does what he's talking about is it it brings about change. But if you're purposely trying totally. to be manipulative and there seems like it could get pretty malicious pretty fast. I don't know where. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I think magic magic can get very, very pernicious. <laughs> yeah. There's no doubt about that. And magic yeah. is usually usually causes nothing but trouble if we're talking about actual <laughs> practical magic like but um but magic in the sense like uh, uh art is a form of magic i agree yeah art is definitely a form of magic and science is a form of magic um and by magic all i mean is that art and science are ultimately rooted in a kind of a causal miraculousness of existence as such like um like science is founded upon the idea of causation, right? But a lot of philosophers have noticed that causation can't explain itself. It can't ground itself. So in a sense, causation can only float in the a causal, which means that the trust we put 
in a in a world that's stable, uniform, and consistent enough for there to be science is a trust that's founded in a kind of faith in the miraculous nature of causation itself. Yeah. So that, you know, science, the idea that I'm going to go to the Galapagos Island and I'm going to look at animals there and I'm going to figure something out about the origins of, of the human species. In fact, of all species, that's what Darwin does as a kind of act of prophecy. There's no real way. He's just, he had such trust in the science that nature was giving him such trust that they all made sense and that things make sense all the way down, knowing full well that they don't have to make sense. We could be living in a topsy-turvy Alice in Wonderland yeah. nightmare, mm -hmm. but we don't most of the time. Sometimes we suddenly <laughs> do, but uh, he trusted the world and that kind of trust or faith in nature that allows, look at what science has made possible. I mean, in, the thing about science and technology is they are precisely built around realizing things that were first imagined by magicians and storytellers, flight, you know, yeah. long distance communication, all those things that magicians could do or that um, storytellers and myth makers imagined magicians doing or gods doing, we've yeah. made real. There's no real... There's no real difference. I mean, so maybe that's if I say, well, that's what's magic. That's what magic is. Well, then maybe I'm magic has become so loose a concept that it doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. But I guess then we have like actual practical magic, like the actual uh, uh, execution or, or practice rituals in order to obtain effects. Yeah. Uh, through the manipulation of occult forces. That's another, yeah. that's, uh, that's a very specific type of magic. And uh, I think that that also yeah. exists. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when yeah. you actually believe in like spirits and angels and stuff, it, it gets, yeah, there's a lot of different forms that it can take on. And like you said, it gets, exactly. It gets pretty yeah. tricky and pretty dangerous pretty quick. And it's not uh, reduced to, uh, yeah, I guess there's this weird way. I don't want to say science. I don't know what it is, but there's a weird way of reducing it to materialism. Like, like you said, and it's a, it's it's a lot more than that, and there's spirits can be involved, yeah. and then there's also when you start even thinking about just consciousness, there's just weird subtleties to it where it's just, yeah. Oh yeah. But and and magic is a fraught word, you know. Um, magic, the word comes from magia, from a, like an ancient Greek word, which meant, um, the art practiced by the rulers of Persia, who were the magi. For a while, they were the rulers or they were like the elite in Persia, but they were eventually, I believe, massacred. You know, uh, this is a particular group in the Persian Empire who had a lot of power for a while. They were actually like an ethnic group, but they were reputed even in Persia for having like magical powers and practicing these arts. And, and for the Greeks, the, ma the Magi, the Magi, the, the, these Persians were the ultimate other on which the Greeks could project all of their fantasies and nightmares. So they, that's where the Magia, the words comes from there. And the craft of the Persians, the Persian, Persia was the enemy of Greece. Um, the craft of the Persian was seen as like this dark, sorceress, exotic, dangerous um, art. And so um, in that, that became, that's the root of our word magic. You know, it's the art of the East, the art of the, of the Persians over there. That's what they do. The secrets that they, you know, yeah. 
that they they harbor and they they've passed That's on interesting and so magic has always had the sense of it's always what's excluded so for instance you know then you have christianity comes in and uh europe becomes christian the mediterranean becomes largely christian and then what happens is that uh they have a bunch of sacraments right the eucharist and but those aren't magic you know the magic is what the other people are doing um, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah this gets a little weird there's a because i grew up um very I, I don't know if you know word of faith that was uh there's I don't know. There's a lot of different denominations, but one thing they would do is the um, prayer cloths and things like that. Are you familiar with that at all? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. Well, it's basically, it's this one passage in the Bible where it says cloths were taken from Paul's body. I think he was just in his work clothes or something. And then these cloths, I guess people touched him and got healed. And so there's right. kind of this whole practice where you'd pray on a cloth, you'd pray over a cloth, and then you'd give the cloth, the person could take the cloth, go lay it on somebody and they'd get healed. And um, oh, yeah, I'm like, I mean, as a Catholic, I know all kinds of things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I grew up with that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I know, think like it's real, had... but it's it is kind of a weird form of magic. But I'm like, it, it works. It so is magic. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's funny because the people who do that, then if you were to say, oh, I'm gonna do a sigil magic and like, um, you know, use the spirit of Saturn to channel, and people would go, oh my God, you're like a demon worshiper. But they're they're practicing magic themselves. I mean, it's yeah. kind of everywhere. Yeah, or even yeah. if you want to, if you want to go to another area and, and see the same thing happening. I mean, like, there's a guy named Joshua Ramey, really good guy, but really, really, really smart um, philosopher. And he wrote a book a few years ago called Politics of Divination. And in that book, he argues um, that uh, essentially, um, like Wall Street speculators are essentially magicians not just like metaphorically but modern economics is entirely a magical kind of practice it's not called magic because it's so official it's like in persia the magi or the magi i don't know how they pronounce it who were in charge didn't see what they did as magic they just saw yeah. this this is what the gods want us to do but then they were you know the magicians were like the the hedge hedge wizards out in the country doing curses and stuff those people were doing yeah. the bad form of magic but the big official magic is but economics is, is as practiced in many areas today arguably economics itself the basic axioms of it is kind of makes it a form of it's basically the same thing that astrology was for a thousand years two thousand years just making um, predictions which, in that way so. but this making predictions uh based on really kind of almost arbitrary measures um choosing a bunch of you know um for instance in classical i don't know much about economics so i don't this either is not this, my argument yeah, yeah. <laughs> well my the argument reason, the reason i'm curious is yeah. because there's a um like there's different kingdoms in the bible right and then one of them that strikes me of uh like kind of what you're talking about economics is the kingdom of Tyre. Is that how you say it? T-Y-R-E or something? Cause it's this, that's it's how this, I say it. Yeah. Yeah. The city that sits in the, in the midst of the sea. Right. And so that's the sea and it's the merchant city. So it like it, yeah, it taught when it talks about it, it's the merchant city that gives all their goods to the poor. And it's like, it has this weird capability of like making another kingdom rich. Like it says, no one knows how to cut timber, like, like the city of Tyre, like they can cut down trees, raise them up. And it's this, in there it's just kind of got this imagery of like 
ships carrying a bunch of goods going back and forth from the city and she sings the city sings her siren song like the siren song of money and all this stuff and it's just kind of it always makes me think of that but then it, yeah. in the prophecy on it it says behold when it's talking to like the prince or the angel of tyre it's like you're wiser than daniel you uh i don't know what the exact text it's in ezekiel but it reminds me of kind of like what you're talking about this uh mm-hmm. when you can understand the ways of the sea and stuff like that and the way the the ships go back and forth on it you're able to manipulate it in a way or something yeah. like that yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of brilliant yeah, yeah absolutely like um uh capital or money is a god you know mammon yeah. is the name the the bible gives that god i don't know if mammon was the god of tyre that would be too good if it, if he were um yeah, i don't know uh, that would so, be, <laughs> but um <laughs> it's a god and and a god, that doesn't mean it it doesn't exist it means that it's archetypal it's mm-hmm. something that and but it is i think rather dangerous to be worshiping a god while thinking you're not doing that thinking you're doing something else you know what i mean yeah and the one of the problems with modern secular culture is that since it denies the existence of these archetypal for lack of a better term, archetypal forces, it um, pretends like it's in control. And then it's not, it's in a somnambulist state. And it's like, we wonder, like, think of how crazy history is when you look back, look at the last 120 years, it's like a kind of like a schizoid episode. And um, nobody can know where we'll be in 10 years. And that's not just true now because of the internet. That was true in the 1930s. Think about the world between 1920 and 1945, like, or 1950 and 1980. Like things were changing like they had never done before. And they're not just, it's not like they're, they're not progressing linearly. Nobody can believe that anymore. We're seeing that all this technological progress involves a lot of moral uh, degradation or regression, you know, like there's a lot of, it, it doesn't just move in a straight line. It's kind of like we're caught in a dream yeah. or as, um, as Deleuze says, a, a vent de sorcière, which means like a witch's wind, a witch wind. It's like, we're caught in this, this dream wind. And, and once in a while, we're like, where are we going? What's going on? And, and then we fall back into it. And I think that's, that's what happens when you're worshiping forces that you don't know you're worshiping you think yeah. they're just you're in control of them but they're, yeah. they're controlling you you know yeah. it's like uh jung said uh repress the god's return as diseases you know it's as simple as it could be if you don't you can either recognize the gods for what they are or mm-hmm. deny their existence they'll be in you and they'll they'll come out uh of you in ways that you can't imagine and you'll never even know what's going on yeah yeah Yeah. that's crazy yeah 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 it's very sobering there's definitely something to that yeah well it's kind of scary when you think about who's in charge and what's going on on the planet because it's yeah scary what's happening right now Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah yeah and there are these overarching god spirits whatever you want to call them i think the archetypal um yeah like you're talking about is a way of 
I don't know. It's weird too because people, and in, in, even in Christianity, that happens a lot, I guess, too. Not to not to throw rocks like my own religion, but even talking about Greek gods and stuff, a lot of people I've come across will shut down on those thoughts. And I'm like, no, they're very real. They're just personifications of these. Uh, Paul talks about them all the time. Yeah, yeah, and they're principalities, they're very and they're yeah. yeah, they're principalities and their powers, and they're up there and they're real. And the Greeks just had a way of personifying them, which is yeah, incredibly beautiful to me and. It, extremely interesting but um that doesn't make them not real just because you think they're no they're people or whatever yeah they're they're more than uh, that they're they're probably a lot more than their personifications that the greeks gave them but they're at least attempting to get at uh an idea but it, it, i think something there's something about personifying them that almost helps you recognize them there i think when they're there because then you could ah uh, absolutely yeah. yeah and maybe that's i don't know if that's entirely healthy but it seems like you could once you understand what aries is it's like you can you can notice him when he's when he's yeah. over when he's over a whole culture or something like or a whole event you're like oh aries is here right now he's he showed up and yeah well i mean just the simple fact i mean just on a purely psychological uh view the simple fact that aries the spirit of war inhabits us it's in the psyche Mm-hmm. explains why you want to personify it because you want to recognize it in others and in yourself. Yeah. Even though it also exists. It's like one of the things I love about Neil Gaiman, the Sandman. Do you know that comic book series? I, I don't, but is this the thing they just did the show off of or something on that? Yeah. Okay. I've watched yeah, a little original, bit of that. Yeah. I don't know. I would read the comic. Okay. Um, All right. Comic is really great. Uh, one of the great things. So it's about this guy. He's the Lord of dreams, right? He's like, he's a personification of dreams. Yeah. But in a lot of the stories, when when Gaiman was writing stories, there's one where um, it's like in an African setting. So all of a sudden, Morpheus, the main character, looks black. Or even like in one story, it's about cats. So there's like a cat version of him. So he exists at every level, not just culturally among different human cultures, like our, all these different cultures recognize the same archetypes, but also different tiers of nature. So there's like there's one book that he wrote after the series where I think Morpheus there's like a plant version of him on this other planet because it's all plants right yeah. so like that's what an archetype is so it it needs to be fully personifiable mm-hmm. right like Ares have to has to be fully a human character but infinitely more right mm-hmm. he's also the redness of blood that was Ares yeah you know the cloud of rage or the cloud of the mist, you know, the fog of war, they call it when you're uh-huh. in battle or, and nothing makes sense anymore. And you're just like yeah. that madness that seizes uh, soldiers on a battlefield is Aries as well. Yeah. The clash of iron, kind of all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 The clash of iron. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so he's manifesting on all these levels but to to deny the the personification is to lose sight of the thing that for us because that's our image holds it all together so and i think that in general i think personifying things is a good there's a great a great writer about magic his name is Lionel Snell he used to write under the name Ramsey Dukes uh and in a book he comments that you know if your car breaks down um and you interpret it like you'll you can do a lot more if you make your car a person in additional in addition to being a car 
Uh-huh. If you go, well, what's wrong with you, Betsy? You know, and then you, yeah. you, you treat the car as a person. It's like, well, let's see. What have you been through lately? Oh, yeah, there's that awful storm the other day. You had to drive that snowstorm you had to drive through. And we had to, you know, like if you approach an object like it's a person, uh-huh. you'll be able to see a lot more in that object yeah. than if you were just to see it as a as an inanimate thing that exists just now in front of me. You yeah. give it a history, you give it a life, you give it plans and dreams. Yeah. And, and suddenly your car becomes a lot easier and more fun to yeah. main to, to maintain and to upkeep than yeah. it would be if you just saw it as a hunk of junk that has no soul. Right. Yeah, that's hard. That's kind of hard to do because there's so many of the like the degrees of separation, I guess. Cause I'm thinking like if with the car, like it comes out of the factory at this point. And so we've just kind of almost like killed it by the time it gets to you. Like if I built, if I were to go out and build a car from the materials of the earth, I'm like, that would be my baby. And it would just like, it would have a personality and it would have a story and everything built into it. Cause it's like, you took all the materials and put it together and yeah. Yeah. Phil and I, Phil and I have talked about that in the context of magic, right? So let's say you want to practice magic. Well, you'll need like a, a knife, right? And a chalice. Uh, what do you do? Do you just go to the occult shop and buy them? Or do you like find an old chalice that you can appropriate? Or do you just, you know, do you make your own? Oh yeah, I have to learn how to smelt silver. Like I have yeah. to learn, I have to go mine the silver and build the whole thing on my own. So like the more you can invest in it, mm-hmm. the more you identify with it, the easier it is to personify it. But if if yeah. if everything is already personifiable because of the archetypes, then yeah. that's just a way for you to access the personification that's already there, even in the store-bought, you know, dollar store chalice. Um, yeah. And and maybe that's harder to see. It's like when you get a new car, it feels really dead, I find. It feels like an object. Yeah. It's a new toy. It's fully just your property. You're kind of proud of it. Oh, look at my new car. Don't eat my car. Keep it clean. Yeah. But then 10 years down the road, that car has suddenly... It has a personality. Uh-huh. It, it's become a person just by sheer force of, of enduring the elements and enduring you. Yeah. And then all of a sudden your car can be personified. Like I have a an old Nissan Rogue that's coming along in years. And and I, I, yeah, I feel like it has personality now. It's got a little, it's got something. It, yeah. it always had that. I just, I couldn't see it before because it just looked like, it looked exactly like rogues <laughs> yeah this is but really... now that it's got all these bumps and my my daughter like scratched her initials into the hood when she was four years old now That's it's great. like it's it's a, it's a it's a totally unique rogue it's yeah. a rogue rogue it's got its own story like kind of has its own spirit i don't know it kind of makes me think of like yeah. even like haunted objects and relics and things like that it's kind of the same thing exactly and uh, or haunted houses yeah. yeah yeah and when you buy yeah. like you'd almost there's a huge difference between buying a a used book and a new book and everything and and people like even christians yeah. will acknowledge that when it comes to books like if there's a book on witchcraft or something it's like oh there's a probably a spirit in the book or something like that it's like yeah there probably is oh yeah, yeah you're you're definitely right about that yeah even this like i was thinking like this hat my friend asked me cal he was like why do you wear the hat and i was like well there's a lot of reasons now like at first i bought it right. just because it was just <laughs> i don't know a weird hipster thing but i'm like now it's like yeah it's just been through so much. I got this little string on there. I uh, went to India and a little girl tied it on there and said, don't ever take oh, nice. it off. And so I'm like, no, I'm never taking it off. So it's like, it's got, it's got a lot of story like you're talking about. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Story kind of, and soul, you know, yeah. it's the same thing. Starting to become a weird relic in a way or something. But um I I don't know how long you have. I'm like I'm That's, totally free, but I know we've been going I was for a just while. writing you in the chat. Um I was just writing in the, so that it wouldn't interfere with your recording. Oh, okay. I was writing, I, okay. I have to wrap it up. Maybe another, like we can, we can like bring it in for landing, you know? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I did want to, I mean, I'd hopefully this won't be too long, but I got to ask, <laughs> did you read that story at all? I did. Okay. The disc by. Do you, uh, any, anything like quick that you got out of it? We don't, if it's, if it's like elaborate, we don't have to get into it, but. Well, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna summarize the story for your your viewers, and then you can tell me what you think. Okay. And then I I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Um, right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like me and me and my friend Mitch have been stumped on this story, so I don't know what I. Think, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty stumped too. I was hoping okay. you'd say something. Okay. So <laughs> okay. the story is um, uh, a woodcutter. It's in the first person. This wood woodcutter is remembering an incident where, um. He's kind of this sour, bitter man, right? Uh, he, mm -hmm. he used to have a brother. His brother died. Now he lives alone off in the woods, kind of a recluse, a bit of a hermit um, off in the forest somewhere in, in England, it turns out. But it's kind of weird, meta fantastical England, it seems. Yeah. And one day the stranger showed, shows up at his cabin and says he's homeless and needs a place to sleep. So the woodcutter feeds the stranger um and gives him a, a bed to sleep in. The, he sleeps in the bed where his brother died. The cutter's brother died. And then the next day, he's walking him to town or something. And then the the uh, the stranger drops something. Was it his cane? Drops his cane on the ground and tells, tells him to pick him tells up. the woodcutter to pick it up. And then the yeah. woodcutter's like, "Why should I pick up your stuff for you?" And he says, "Because I'm king." And he's then he said he claims that he's the he's a king. He's the king of the sections. Which yeah. I don't know if it's like there's a real people. I've never seen that word before. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's yeah. I don't know either. He's the king of a, a people. So it looks like it's taking place like in the Middle Ages, right after uh before the Norman conquest, when all these different Germanic tribes were kind of like coexisting in England. Uh and so this guy was the king of one of these people, was my impression. Uh, but now he's lost his kingdom. But as long as he holds the disc he has in his hands, he'll remain king. So then the guy's like, show me the disc. And he opens that and you can't see a disc. Uh, and then the stranger says, well, the disc is in my hand. Touch it. And then when the woodcutter touches the man's palm, he can actually touch the disc. So it's invisible. And then the stranger says, this disc is the only object in the world to have only one side. It's a disc with only one side, which I think is just brilliant, which yeah. is why you can't see it, right? Yeah. Um, so the woodcutter wants the disc. He, he tries to buy it off the stranger. The stranger refuses. And then the woodcutter says, well, then off with you then. And then as, as the, the stranger starts to walk away and the woodcutter takes his axe and cuts him down kills him and then drags his body to the river. But when he comes back, the disc, he can't find the disc and he's been looking for it ever since. So that's the story. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have no idea. Like we've been going at this. I, I, we had like a whole episode where we were trying to dig into it. And um, the, the weird thing he says, he's, yeah, he worships Odin. No, he's, he's in the line of Odin or something like that. And he yeah. has, I, when the, when the guy shows up, he's got a scar across his face. 
So I didn't know if this had something to do with Odin losing his eye too. We we're getting at that. I was like, I don't know if it's maybe the guy wants the disc. The woodcutter wants the disc so he can sell it so he can become king, which is kind of not the same. Yeah. The guy's like, yeah. so I don't know if it's something like maybe seeing one-sidedly, he only sees yeah. in the material realm. And so that's why he can't find the disc. Like I, I'm, I'm grabbing a that's straws a good, here. That's a good, that's a good interpretation. And uh, it, it turns it into a kind of allegory, but that's good. That's like one really good interpretation. Um, I'm trying to remember, cause I've read, you know, the Norse myths. I don't remember anything about a pentacle or a disc in those myths, yeah. but maybe later I'll remember something and kind of uh, be really disappointed. That I, I don't, remember it now. I don't um, think there is. See, the weird thing is, have you ever read blue tigers by the, by a, uh, is it Jorge? Uh, uh, Luis Borges uh, yeah. blue tigers. I, I read Ficciones and I read uh, the LF. So okay. whatever was in those, I can't remember if well, I read that one. Well, in Blue Tigers, he mentions discs as well. So I don't know if it's a symbol that's more, I don't know if it's a symbol from Greek myths or if it's a symbol that uh, that he, the author's personally using, um, which is high enough. So I might have to read more by him to pick up on the, how he uses the disc symbol or yeah. something. But how, 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 how the symbol kind of maps on, onto his tracks through his work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I don't know. I um I think that it has something to do with um there's also in a lot of the Germanic and Norse myths, uh Odin shows up at your house as a stranger to test you. And um so Odin was would suddenly like you know appear as a, an old man and then knock at people's doors to test their hospitality, right? Because in those cultures, being hospitable uh, okay. was a, a duty, something you owed other humans. Mm -hmm. um, so Odin would test people by showing up as a kind of stranger and then seeing if they would let them in. And so that's why I picked up on that and the scar across the face as well. I'm like, oh, this is Odin. This is Odin testing this guy. Um, and he fails the test. He fails the test because he can't believe in what he. Yeah. He can't. Well, it's not that he doesn't believe in the disc. He obviously believes in it, but he just sees it as a trinket to be sold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's almost this convicting aspect too, because he says, uh, I don't worship Odin. I worship Christ. And then he cuts the man down. Right. You're like, oh, man. yeah. Come on. I don't see yeah. <laughs> those yeah, those two things don't go together too well. I worship yeah, yeah. Christ. Although in historically, <laughs> yeah. A lot of people who say they worship Christ cut people down with axes. Um, so I don't know. Um yeah, I, don't, I, I wouldn't make too much I wouldn't make too much of the uh, like it's a critique of Christianity. I don't think it's the worst. Oh yeah, that I way. don't think yeah, I don't think it um, is either. And it's weird too, because I almost don't want to find out what it means like it, it seems well, like such a vague yeah. weird story that it's like it's so intriguing because of that but i feel like it could apply i feel like it's something's going to happen to me at some point in my life and i'll be like oh that's the disc that's oh, what that, it was yeah. about <laughs> yeah but then I it'll like exactly then it'll the elude yeah. me or something like i'll be like oh no that wasn't the disc and it'll come back around again my friend mitch was like i it's think the story's the disc and that's why we can't get at it but yeah i don't know yeah but I can let you go here in a minute. There was like, sorry, oh, go ahead. 
we're expecting it to have two sides, like yeah. an allegorical side, but it's just the one side. But we keep <laughs> looking for the other side, and we can't see just for what it is. It's just a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think you're right. And, and yeah. Borges is so brilliant that, um, and and I I will remember this story as I remember a lot of his stories, but this one in particular hit me hard today. <laughs> it came out at the right time, so thank you for sharing. Oh, it. That's, that's good. I'm glad that. Yeah. Yeah, the Blue Tigers, I like I like that one better, but it's a, a little bit longer. This one's super short, so it's very easy to share as well. But yeah, there was there was one thing, other thing I wrote down, and then I can let you go. And it was just because I would have brought it up earlier, but I was actually reading today and the scriptures, and then it made me think about it. And I was like, I should just bring this up uh, before I let, I let you go. Otherwise, I might regret it. But there's, because I was reading Song of Songs, um, and I don't know. There's this idea that just has just been hitting me, like, because it's. Have you, are you familiar with the book at all? The yeah. song. Okay, yeah. yeah, and it's very like poetic, a lot of imagery and everything. It's mm -hmm. got a lot of garden imagery, um, but it's just recently I've been thinking like how Tolkien talks about the creation coming in a form of song, and I'm just like, this is this is it for some reason because I there's this weird mm -hmm. play with Solomon, um, and I haven't heard many people talk about, it, but like Solomon means peaceable. And then his what like so there's like peace and rest and death are like all connected. Um and nice. the seventh day is rest, like his mother's name is Bathsheba. So Sheba is mean seven, and the queen of Sheba comes to him, and there's like another seven. And there's this weird connection. And then in the book Song of Songs, it's like you have the king, and it's this interplay between the king and the Shulamite woman. And so Shulam is like Shalom which is also like peace and rest. And, and I think yeah. it's like this weird interplay between how death gives birth to life and how the king has to enter into death. And then it, it brings forth oh. life. And it's, it's uh, the book's gotten really strange for me now. Cause now it's like, you can kind of see this weird sort of like sleep death dream world thing going on at the same time. And that wow. they'll say like, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, like turn my beloved and all this stuff. And it's just this weird it's it's gotten even more beautiful. It's very strange. I don't know. I just wanted to bring it up because I'm like, I feel like you're the Fantastic. right guy. To, the way you think and way the way you put things together, I feel like you're the right guy to bring that up to. Well, I don't know. I I can read it before we meet again. Let's just Okay. You know, yeah. next it, next time we meet, we yeah. will discuss the song of That'd songs. That'd be great. I would love to I'd love to talk again. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, cool. <laughs> if yeah. you know, whenever that happens. Thank you so much. Yeah. It was yeah, it was really good to meet you, man. Yeah, it was great to meet you too. Oh, do you want to um like plug anything or say anything you got coming up or i mean i'll put links um, in the. i said it all at the beginning okay you know, if right. people want to find me they'll they'll figure it out <laughs> jf right. martel all right google this guy yeah well thanks again so much it was great talking to you thank you so for spending your time you. i know all right but you have a good night you too all right see you. bye